Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Back to Straight from the Source. Uh, this is Michael Russo, and uh, very happy to be joined uh, by one of my favorite people, and not just because he's a Minnesota Wild Rube, but because I hear him all the time on uh, the fan, and he's in a lot of ways been a sort of a pen pal of mine ever since my days at the Star Tribune. We uh, talk back and forth about hockey. I actually got to meet his uh, he and his son at a, a Wild game or two uh, back in the day. But I, one of the big reasons why I want to get Dr. Bill Maurice on, who is the chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the president of Mayo Medical Laboratories. He's been there since 1987. His expertise is in blood cancers and immunology and hematology. Uh, but one re- big reason why I want to get uh, Dr. Maurice on this week is to talk about uh, COVID-19 and uh, whether or not it's feasible for these uh, sports leagues, and in particular the one that I know a lot of you are listening and very interested about, the National Hockey League, uh, to resume their season this year. But another big reason is because Dr. Maurice told me the other day that reporters should be allowed to cover games with social distancing and masking. Do you agree with that still, Dr. I do. I, I do agree with that still. Now tell me, Absolutely. So the, the big reason that, and this is like, I'm not trying to be selfish, but this is one of the big reasons why I wanted you to have you on is so the National Hockey League hires up, listen to this. But uh, you said that since you guys adopted um, measures at Mayo for high risk exposure, it's dropped actually 90%. And um, that I think you said that documented transmissions from patients and healthcare workers have been pretty much zero. Is that pretty accurate? That is accurate. So first of all, thank you for having me on. It's it's kind of surreal that there's this intersection between my professional life and my fandom of sports in general and the wild <laughs> and NHL in particular. It's, it's not something, an unanticipated consequence of the COVID pandemic, that's for sure. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, Mayo Clinic, as where I've worked for, as you can know, as you said, for over 30 years, um, has gone through this journey just like everybody else in terms of how do we reopen and, and stay safe and, and protect our patients and protect our, our healthcare workers. And so uh, what we instituted was essentially a universal masking policy where uh, all the patients wear masks and eye shields and all the um, doctors and healthcare workers wear face masks and eye shields, at least when they're in the close care setting. Um, and since we've done that, we've had really no documented cases of transmission um, from a patient to to a to a healthcare worker. And in fact, really, most of the the what we we now categorize them as high risk exposures, meaning someone had COVID, didn't know it, 
and was around someone that we now have to worry about that individual. Um, almost all those are happening in, in places where they're kind of letting their guard down, um, like break rooms and stuff where they're eating and taking off protective equipment. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the social distancing and, and, uh, and protective uh, personal equipment, PPE, all that stuff is really highly effective in blocking the transmission of the virus. And as you said to me in a text, uh, if it works in the hospital, it should work for the National Hockey League, which immediately I uh, sent to the league, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, excellent. Yeah, like you're trusted. You're trusted. <laughs> now it's a totally different insider information than typically you're probably looking for on your beat. No, yeah. um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting paradigm. Even here, everywhere, there's different levels of uh, – of risk tolerance between individuals. And so I think what we really have to do now, uh, both for sports and for, um, and for just businesses in general is just have a real rational data driven approach. And so I really do think that the data shows for limited exposures, um, and that we, if you really respect those, those rules, there's really no reason why, uh, reporters couldn't be, have access to the players. And I, I do think it's really important, um, Particularly for the NHL, I think there's something about, and it might be now because I'm fully assimilated to Minnesota, but there's something very relatable about the players. I think that's part of the appeal of the sport. And of course, the reporting and, you know, more interesting or as interesting to all of us as sports fans and as wild fans and hockey fans will be, what does it feel like for those players to be back on the ice, to be back in the room? Um, you know, what's going through their heads? Is it affecting their play? Uh, you know, there's so those things will be as compelling a part of the story as the actual uh, tournament and round robin play on the ice. Absolutely. And again, we're talking with Dr. Maurice of uh, Mayo Clinic. Um, let's talk about uh, about coming back to play. Uh, you know, when I talk to you for this story that I am going to be uh, working on uh, that will uh, appear in The Athletic this week, the one thing that you did say um, is at the time, at least, was that your opinion was that that hockey should be able to come back, that that you really feel that with a good pre-quarantine, uh, frequent testing and um, and just making sure that the bubble that the players are going to live in for upwards of two months is really tight, that that it is feasible to come back. Do you, do you still believe that? I do. I, I do believe it's possible. And I think it really boils down to um, it does boil down to, though, how what level of surety do the players need um, to be able to to come back and, and be on the ice? Because it's really a combination of measures, as we talked about, that will help to keep them safe. Testing by itself will not keep does not eliminate the risk. It reduces it. Um, and so there's all the other things, just like we you know, kind of opened this the the podcast here, there's a lot of other things that go into keeping people safe beyond testing. And it's kind of then comes down to what, how much will the players be comfortable with um, both from a risk perspective, as well as from an intrusiveness perspective uh, in, in terms of their lifestyle during that time that they're back. But in that, and that's a balance. And I think that's what you're seeing is playing out most publicly, I think with the, with the um, major league baseball, you know, where they're really trying to strike that balance between the players and the, and the owners of what, what does risk and what does the right balance look like. But it's definitely there. And I think it's definitely possible. And it really, well, we can go more into that, but it really also depends a lot on what you're trying to avoid. Right. And, and what would some of those factors be? Well, I mean, again, ultimately short of a vaccine that if you know if this was just a common cold even if this was just a bad flu we certainly wouldn't have stopped play and the best thing would be if you know 
people were exposed to it and got through it, and then you wouldn't have to worry about your team getting sick, right? And and as you and I were texting back and forth, hockey is interesting in that there have been other examples, the mumps a couple of years ago where infectious disease has actually played a role in the who's available on the ice for significant uh, you know members of the team. As I recall, Brodine was out for quite a while with the mumps. I might be wrong on that. but Yeah, yeah. Um, he was out a couple of weeks. And as you mentioned, uh, the Wild lost basically their entire blue line at one point. Yeah. So, so, I mean, really, um, if I was in their shoes, which I'm not, but even here at Mayo, uh, as a healthcare worker, part of our compact, of course, is that we treat, take care of the ill. So we're going to be exposed to, to, to patients with infectious disease. If you can prevent people from getting really sick from COVID, I think that's, what's really important. And if you look at the NHL players, they're going to be, uh, healthy by and large, they're going to be in, in a category that would be less than 1% or less than certainly less than 5 percent or probably less than one percent chance of really even getting severely ill so it's kind of like do we worry about making sure that no one ever gets covid 19 virus in on an nhl team for the remainder of 2020 or do we make sure that we're going to reduce the risk and if someone does get it we're going to make treatments that are now becoming uh really shown to have uh effect available to these players to make sure they don't get really sick with it. So it's, there's a lot of different permutations. Uh, you know, I'm not part of the inside conversations there, but there is, a, there are a lot of permutations that I think are available to the NHL to, to keep players safe uh, for the long term and the short term and also allow them to come back to play. Especially because in, in you know, by the time that these players do return, if, as long as the players do vote to return uh, in the next uh, week or so, do you feel like, uh, you know, by early August that there will be really quality treatments that if a player does get sick that you don't have to shut everything down again, you could just remove the the infected player and actually treat them? Yeah, I think that there'll be, you know, by the end of the summer, there'll be two, uh, at least two things that will be pretty dramatically different from where we are even today. One is the nature of the testing itself. Uh, yeah. Just earlier this week, like I guess it was late last week, there was another headline in the in the Star Tribune about Mayo having this neutralizing antibody test, which is now the serologic testing. So basically, in terms of the tests that we can do, there's a molecular test which tests for the presence of the virus itself. So that's if someone has symptoms um, and you want to know if they have, you know, SARS-CoV-2 virus or, or COVID-19, you do that test. Uh, that's the nasal swab that we've all, all heard about. Um, there's a serologic test, which is a blood test, which doesn't test for the virus, but tests whether someone's been exposed to the virus and had an immune response, which generates a protein called an antibody, which is a protein that's specifically targeted for SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19. The next level of, of testing is actually to take someone that has one of those antibodies and actually test it if it can block the virus from infecting cells. Uh, that's, a, that's a test that we have now available. And... What we're finding now that we have that is that if you have those actual neutralizing antibodies, it probably means that you're protected. So, again, we might even be able to say with some certainty certain players that might be have been exposed. Uh, you think of players in, in Europe, you know, in areas of Europe and even the U.S. Um, where there's been more disease prevalence. There might be some that we can say with pretty high confidence in August don't have to worry at all um, because of the testing. And then for those that, that do or that we can't quite give that level of certainty, uh, we're seeing a lot happening on treatment. Uh, one of the big ones now is the convalescent antisera. So it's related to those things. It's taking blood from people, the plasma, which is a clear part of the blood, uh, from someone that's had COVID 
and it's generated these antibodies and giving it to someone that gets exposed to the virus. We're just starting to see the data come back from that, but it really looks like it works. And there's other drug, drugs, remdesivir. So by, by August, there'll probably be actual treatment protocols. So it's like, you know, because, you know, the thing about where we were two months ago, where, uh, you know, you could a player, uh, maybe someone that's coming into free agency, which is all you're going to be uh, so uncertain. Um, and then they they come in and the best answer is, well, we're going to do everything we can to help you from getting sick. And if you get sick with COVID, we'll just keep our fingers crossed that you don't get really sick and have like pulmonary injury or blood clots or some of the other things that could actually really affect someone's career and, and playing ability too. Um, we're going to test. We're going to have a reasonably high level of certainty that you're not going to get it. And if you are, if we do have some a hole in our safety net that that manages to slip through, um, that you slip through, we will have treatments available right away that you'll be prioritized for to make sure that it's not that we manage the infection and that your risk of having anything career threatening is almost zero. I mean, to me, that's a lot different. And I mm-hmm. we can get there, I think, by the end of August for sure. You're listening to uh, Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. My guest uh, today is Dr. Bill Maurice, who's been at the Mayo Clinic for more than 30 uh, years. Uh, just became cool to his uh, son, by the way, because he's on the fan every week. So uh, <laughs> it's not that a you're cooler. A I don't know. I don't know if I'm actually cool, but I'm cooler than I was <laughs> pre pre fan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it's just uh, hilarious to me. You're this big week at Mayo and yet uh, now because you're on the sports radio station here in Minnesota you're the you're the man to your son um <laughs> I did want to ask you you know I I the one thing I wanted to talk to you about was pre-quarantine and what that exactly entails because um because it does as you and I have talked it it you could be exposed to covid but it could take 3 to 5 days for it to you to actually test positive am I correct That's correct so I think that it's really important for people to understand, and this is people even uh, at Mayo Clinic here, my, some of my colleagues, as we try and explain the best and think about the best way to use testing to keep Mayo safe, uh, any healthcare facility safe, is that the challenge with this virus, with COVID-19, is that so you get infected. So let's say you're however, whatever it might be, but you're exposed to someone that's sick with COVID, you get the virus, you call that day zero. From day zero to probably day five or six, you have the virus in you and it's it's replicating and, and yet you don't have any symptoms and you have no idea that you have it. Um, and then probably the, your peak infectivity is right around that day five, six, when you're still asymptomatic. And it's, once you become symptomatic and you say, geez, I might have gotten sick from that person that I was exposed to a week ago, um, you've already been potentially spreading the virus for a week, right? And the challenge is with the molecular test, it's like, well, why don't we just test everybody? Is that even in that window um, where you don't have any symptoms, you can still be spreading the virus and yet the testing is not terribly sensitive because you don't have a ton of virus yet. So there's a lot of good studies now that show in those first three or three or four days after infection, you're just as likely as not to have a negative test, even if you have the virus, just because it's difficult to get a specimen that really has enough virus on it for us to detect. It's no weakness of the of the test itself. It's just the way the virus operates. And that's and that's a challenge too, is it appears it doesn't take a whole lot. To, of exposure to, to actually catch it. So there's things about the virus that just make it 
particularly uh, easy to spread. That's why it, that's why it became a pandemic. Essentially, was that and then it's a fact that it made some people really sick. The other day, I saw a report that said that two weeks after testing the incoming U.S. Army recruits at Fort Benning and isolating four test positive individuals. 22% of a class of 640 had contracted the disease, presumably from infections missed in the original screening, or as you said, maybe they just couldn't be uh, testing positive yet. How big of a concern is that for sports leagues coming back that if you know you, you get to Vegas or you get to Toronto to this hub city that you are initially tested, if you are testing negative, that you actually might have this disease and, and now in this bubble that you all are in are actually spreading the disease. Yeah, it's a it's a real concern uh, there. It's better now than it than we have. A, it's a lot different now than it was in the early days. And I'm not sure I did follow that link. I'm not sure when that um, when that was from. But the you know, the challenge, of course, is that there one person can give the virus to a number of other people in that pre-infective window or pre-positive window, I should say, and pre-symptomatic window. So they're infected, but they're not symptomatic and they may have a negative test because they don't have enough virus for the test to pick up, even though they actually can spread it to other people. Um, and so that that is, and there's stories as you were, you know, as I was reading that that uh, article and that tweet about the, the Fort Benning experience, I mean, that was one of the thoughts was in, in South Korea in the early days of the pandemic, uh, that there was they were actually screening already because they knew and they had experience from the prior SARS virus um, and pre procedures and protocols in place. Um, they but they had one person that they think might have one or two people that might have slipped through and that led to all the spread of infection in South Korea. You know that one person can infect up to 30 30 people unknowingly. Right. So that's where you can get this kind of dramatic spread like that was described. But that was before we knew. Um, a lot about the masking and other other protective measures that were in place. So I think even if someone slips through, if we're now, you know, as we were talking about before, if you're doing a lot of things to protect individuals in terms of masking, in terms of social distancing, those things can really help. And then the other way around that, of course, is to actually quarantine people because it's really those first few days where you run into this, where the person can be spreading the virus, not have symptoms, and have a negative test. Uh, and so in other industries like the aerospace industry, um, which I had the chance to, to be on a, you know, that was also surreal. I never, when I, when I was training in medical school, there was never any class about, well, if you have to talk to the aerospace industry about how to keep astronauts from getting sick, here's what you need to say. Um, but, you know, they're of course having COVID in a space station, you know, could have seriously could actually disable the entire space station. Someone would have to go up there and clean it. Um, so there, the other thing you can do is actually have people show up and have to keep them isolated for a week and test them when they show up and then test them at the end of that week. Then you've kind of covered that period of time where if someone did show up and had just been exposed, you then protect yourself against that with, with repeat testing testing when you know they will be positive. And then you can have a much higher degree of like an almost a 100% degree of certainty that they don't have the virus. Yeah, I, sh I should have mentioned that uh, that some, uh, not only does Mayo talk to a lot of companies about how to essentially restart uh, life in their companies, but you've talked to the people at SpaceX about the two astronauts uh, uh, going up to space recently. You've talked to Major League Baseball, NBA, the track and field, PGA. Um, so, so a lot of people are using your expertise uh, over at Mayo, right, doctor? Yeah, I mean, it's and it's something that that's one of the reasons why I really honestly have, have 
enjoyed working here is that that's the spirit of Mayo Clinic is to really take what we know about taking care of patients first here in Minnesota and then of course now in Arizona and Florida and sharing it as widely as we can to, to, to you know, for the betterment of others. So we have been engaging uh, with a lot of different people who, and entities who've reached out to get guidance from us in terms of, of how to do this the best way. And it's, and it's like everything in medicine it's it, it there isn't it's it's an opinion right because again there's nothing that i we can say with absolute certainty will give you 100% uh, guarantee that you won't get COVID in your facility. So it's kind of like, what's what are the best practices? What's the best w- ways to do the testing? What's the best ways to approach uh, having people around each other? I mean, that's kind of what we've been trying to share. I want to talk to you more about just uh, pre-quarantining and the bubble that these players are going to live in, and then we could talk a little more about the virus uh, later in the show. Um, about being in this bubble that the NHL is going to try to, to create, it's going to be a really tight bubble. Probably no families are going to be there. How important is it for uh, for hotel employees, arena employees, p- people that are around the players to actually live in this bubble as well, or if they are protecting themselves with eye shields, with masks, with gloves, with even gowns that maybe you would wear at Mayo, would that protect the players? Because it does seem like if you're going to put these players in a bubble, but you're letting hotel employees that deal with them on an everyday basis go back to their homes in society, that it sort of defeats the purpose of the bubble. Yeah. Well, I think that there are, if you weren't thoughtful about how you let people in and out of that bubble, you're exactly, in fact, it would have the opposite effect, right? Where now, because people in the inside the bubble will feel protected. So if COVID gets in there, it's more likely to spread. But that being said, uh, there are a lot of things that we can do to really keep that environment safe and and low, very low probability of the players getting infected. Um, as you mentioned, the gowning is, you know, the masking that we've heard about uh, and that most people wear uh, in public is really more about protecting others in case you happen to have COVID and don't know it, as opposed to keeping you from getting it, right? So having people that are coming into the, the bubble uh, to... Uh, I was thinking back. I'm old enough. That I was like in the 70s. I remember there was that TV show, The Boy in the Bubble. It always kind of freaked me out. But anyways, <laughs> but in the bubble, because um, now as it turns out, I got a PhD in immunology, which was what that was about. But anyways, in the <laughs> bubble, um, maybe that's why. They hit that. Uh, but this isn't a therapy session. It's a podcast. But anyways, the um, in the bubble itself, the people are coming in, gowning from the outside um, and masking and doing those things. Even if they have the virus, the chance that they'll spread it is going to be or give it to a player is going to be really, really low, um, especially if the players also gown when they are around others um, or, you know, wear mat not gown, but actually just wear masks and eye shields. The other thing is that people have to remember the virus isn't magic. It, typically, the, the way the virus spreads, this particular virus is by droplets, meaning, you know, as we talk um, and, you know, particularly if we're yelling, I think that's one of the concerns with arenas is, you know, you're going to there are there's spit and aerosolized spit droplets that get out there when you sneeze. But the other big thing is on surfaces. Right. So probably the biggest risk for a player would be that, you know, someone comes in, they have it on their hand, they sit down at a table with them, 
they put their hand on the table, you know, the player then comes in to eat, you know, touches the same surface and picks it up. That surface is so-called fomites. It's actual professional medical term. The fomite transmission is as much of this as anything else. There are things now, um, and I know this because we're also talking to, to companies like in the airline industry um, about ways that you can actually, there are surfaces that are particularly, um, and we're starting to see those pop up that are, you know, uh, actually uh, resistant to the virus and as well as just cleaning protocols. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that they can do with protocols in the physical space of the bubble, as well as the way that people are, you know, are, uh, how they actually protect themselves and others when they come in and out of it that could give it a lot more mobility than, you know, a lot more capability of interacting with the outside world. Because I think it was, you had written a piece with Devin Dubnik, I think, talking about, I mean, I could see it. These guys are, are you know, they, they have family lives and things like that too. So they don't want to just be completely isolated. So, and, but there's, and again, that's where the, where is the right balance? There are people in the armed services and stuff that leave their families for periods of time for their work a lot. So, so I mean, where that balance is, but in terms of your question around, can you create a bubble environment and keep it relatively pristine? The answer is yes. When you talk about the droplets and things like that, you know, I was in a, in a small uh, golf clubhouse the other day where nobody was wearing masks. People are in there returning clothes, buying clothes, um, you know, not really protecting themselves. Is that an area where it could be dangerous just for the general public? And, and does that then uh, really make you concerned about what NHL locker rooms could be like if uh, COVID does somehow infiltrate that room? Yeah, um, the answer to both questions is yes. I mean, I think that's really, you know, I think just in general, one of my concerns is that Look, all of us are really sick of the the stay shelter in place type of lifestyle. Uh, and some people wouldn't even call it lifestyle necessarily. And so that means we're going to be more apt to just want to let our let our proverbial figurative hair down and just go out there and be normal. But it is those instances where you're close to people um, that are particularly risky for spreading the virus. Um, if you don't have a face mask, if you don't have some kind of minimal kind of protect even minimal protection is probably okay but just having nothing at all does definitely increase the risk and i think the locker room is probably i know you and i talked back and forth a little bit about the on the ice stuff i would be you know you could if i made everyone wear the what my son used to call the fishbowl when he played um and you know the if they that would probably be enough to tell you the truth the locker room is probably one area they're going to want to really pay a lot of attention to um probably having the players distanced having uh you know having lockers spread out i've read that the nhl is doing this as well in terms of reopening facilities and having people come for strength strength and conditioning and shifts and having to spread out players in the locker room that kind of thing um you know that to me the locker room is probably the biggest spot um and that's again where they'll they might have to institute some policies that that would be a little bit unusual in terms of guys right. having to wear a mask and stuff like that yeah environmental safety is the big thing i mean that, that is your theory on really how the mump spread it wasn't that these guys were bumping into each other on the ice and checking and breathing on each other it was more so you think that it happened through you know with with similar teams going through similar locker rooms that would yes i mean that's kind of that my thought was probably more related to the physical space and i would have to say though having 
you know, so I came from Indiana. So my oldest son didn't play hockey. My daughter didn't play hockey. I was more of a basketball winter sport guy. But then my when I became a wild fan is a whole story there, too, I'm sure, because he started going when he was a little kid, literally a one year old. So my youngest played hockey. I had the opportunity to be around um, the locker rooms of and, and the hockey used hockey equipment, which might be coloring my <laughs> my my sense of risk from some of those environments. <laughs> you know, just having to store that stuff in my basement. But yeah, it's a uh, it's a disgusting place. <laughs> As Parisi, <laughs> I said to Parisi, I said uh, I said to him the other day, I'm like, uh, man, the bench is a disgusting place. He goes, yeah, it is. It is absolutely. I mean, that's another area where these guys, it's impossible to social distance. You're not going to be wearing masks during games. That's an area that they're going to have to uh, keep very sanitized, right? Yeah, I agree. And like, uh, you know, I don't know, like spitting and stuff like that. You know, honestly, uh, if it was me, uh, yeah, I, I would probably tell those guys to, to even just a cloth mask when they come back off the, you know, it'd be a hassle. I, right. Cause I know with line changes and stuff, it would, you know, that would be an issue or keep their helmets on if they have to wear a fishbowl, which you're not going to want to do either. But dad, the, the bench is one is probably might be the riskiest spot to tell you the truth. Now that I think about it, but, but yeah, yeah. The, 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 there's a very unique odor to a hockey locker room. <laughs> I can't imagine what a pro one is like, but it, it ain't good. Uh, by the way, uh, if you ever want to uh, advertise on The Athletic, uh, make sure you go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads. You can, um, you know, especially locally because we have so many people here in Minnesota that listen to this in particular podcast. But you could just go on that website, uh, theathletic.com slash podcast ads, uh, fill out a little survey, um, you know, what even how much money you'd like to spend. And somebody from The um, Athletic will get back to you. And uh, speaking of that, here's a word from one of our sponsors. If you know me, you know I always look good. Actually, I mean smell good. I rarely, rarely look good, but I always smell good. And that's something I learned on my first date in high school when I bathed in polo for men before going to Dead Poet Society. I know, I know, I was really cool. Well, guess what? I recently discovered Hawthorne, and Hawthorne cologne smells really good. I wear it down in my country club all the time, and all the members want to know what I'm wearing. Well, now it's time for you to get Hawthorne, and with Father's Day coming up, it's also a perfect gift for your dad. You can go to Hawthorne's website, and they've also got personalized products like deodorant, shampoo, body wash, and, of course, cologne. So here's how it works. You go to the website, and you take a quick two-minute quiz, and Hawthorne will tell you the two colognes that are best for you, one for work and one for play. It's totally risk-free with free shipping and free returns. So check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co and use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co and use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. Back here on Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. My guest is Bill Maurice from the Mayo Clinic, uh, one of my favorite people, just because also I love listening to him on the fan. He's a wild fan as well. And uh, we're talking about COVID-19 and whether or not the NHL could actually feasibly come back. Um, want to talk to you a little bit more about this virus, doctor. Um, you know, first of all, you know, how concerned are you right now with the numbers and the seeming uptick that's going on in some states in our in our country? And and I'll be quite honest. I mean, I was down in Stillwater the other day, and I passed an outside bar uh, around 8 p.m. on Saturday night. And there, I'm not kidding you, Doc. There had to be 300 people on this patio, nobody wearing masks, everybody, you know, screaming over loud music, right in each other's faces. Uh, by the way, all at the same time that 
local restaurants, and this is another uh, subject that local restaurants can only be 50% full, uh, these struggling restaurants. And here you got this uh, outside bar where just people are, are not social distancing, not wearing masks, almost like they've forgotten what we've all been through the last four months of inconvenience and um, sacrifice. How concerned are you that there could be even an earlier second wave than originally predicted because people are just forgetting how, uh, how to be uh, you know, protective of themselves and others right now? Well, first of all, I mean, my level of concern starts with uh, the the social and economic disruption that we've seen from COVID has been so painful that I, I, none of us want it to be for naught. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's number one. And I do think that there are risks in terms of as we as we reopen, that if we're not thoughtful about it, that we've all we've really done right now is 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 delay the what we thought was coming so we thought there was going to be this big wave of viral infection we did a we were very proactive as a country in terms of the social distancing and shutting things down we were able to to avoid that which again was critically important because if you look at northern italy which is probably the best uh the best kind of example for us to what would happen if we hadn't done those things what happened was that uh there are a subset of patients uh, that get COVID that get really bad respiratory failure. They also get other, you can get kidney failure and heart failure. Um, those patients need ventilators. They need intensive care to actually get through the viral infection to survive. Um, and what happened in Italy was that even when they saw it coming and they tried to increase the number of beds uh, that had ventilatory support and the kind of the intensive support needed to get people through, they just didn't have enough. And that's when you start to see the death rate really go up. That's when you start hearing about, you know, younger people that if they could have just been nursed through the illness, um, you know, succumbing to the disease. So that's what we really that's what we were trying to avoid. And we did avoid it. But the 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 downside, if you will, of, of avoiding that is that means there's still a lot of people that have never been exposed to the virus. So if we're not thoughtful about how we, we get out, we go about our lives, uh, we still ha carry the same risk uh, that we did before we did all the shutdowns. So we just ha I am concerned about it. Um, we know more. So at least now we have better data. There's still like one thing, I'm part of the Minnesota State Testing Coalition, Mayo is, and I had the, the honor of representing Mayo at the governor's press conference last April here, this past April. Um, so I still sit in on weekly meetings where we could discuss the data um, with the University of Minnesota and with the State Department of Health. We still haven't seen an uptick. You know, one of the big concerns with all the the protests and riots and social unrest in the Twin Cities was an uptick in, in, in positivity, which we have not seen. So there's things that concern me. But then the flip side is you read about Texas and some states where the hospitalization rates really going up. You knew that would start to happen as people got out and about. But the, the, I think what we have to keep an eye on is to make sure it doesn't start to you know, get out of control. Absolutely. Um, you know, everybody's focused on next month, uh, you know, immediately sports are coming back, whatever. You know, down the road, will this virus just be part of our everyday lives forever? I mean, will it mutate every year like the flu or we're, um, that essentially we're going to just have to deal with this for a long, long time and, and every year get a, get a COVID-19 shot as, uh, in addition to the flu shot? Um, the answer is probably going to be something that we're going to live with. So there's really two ways to, to approach these, to, to control something like this. So if you look at the first SARS, um, virus, which was also a coronavirus, that's why this is so called SARS-CoV-2 is because it's considered a, a variant of that first SARS virus, although it's, it's 
about 80% similar between the two uh, at the genetic level. But uh, they, with that first SARS virus, they were able to do enough social isolation of infected individuals that they actually prevented it from spreading across the world. They were actually able to control it and eradicate it by finding the people. Because, you know, if you had just a few infected people and you isolate them all, and they they recover, then the virus is gone from from humans, and that's that's really what happened. They think with the first SARS virus, but that virus is different in that it wasn't so easy to catch and spread as this one is. So this one is spread enough; it's in enough people um, that it appears that, and now it's across the globe. We're probably not going to be able to isolate everyone. Basically, isolate people until the virus is no longer in existence. So that means we're going to have to live with it. Um, that's why there's so much emphasis on the vaccine because the vaccine is going to be the long-term kind of uh, protection. The other thing, honestly, is as it circulates through the population uh, and more and more people are immune to it, it, that's what will stop its spread. That's the whole concept of herd immunity. You know that basically uh, most cold viruses we get exposed to early in life. Um, when we're not going to get really sick with them. And that means that uh, most people have some protective immunity. But when a virus is brand new like this, you know, it can affect everybody. They have no immunity. And older people tend to get sicker with things anyways, or people with, you know, underlying health conditions got really sick with this. So th that's the, the downside is we're going to be living with it. The upside is that the vaccine trials are, are really happening at a dramatic pace. Uh, as I mentioned before, we have other therapies. The other thing that's different around the coronaviruses is they're not like the flu. They tend to not mutate. Um, they have changes and they mutate, but the, you know, the flu, you have to get a new vaccine every year because the virus has changed so much that you, your antibodies last year and your protection last year might not work this year. The coronaviruses aren't really the same way. So I think that uh, over time, we'll be able, to, it'll be managed, but it won't be out of existence. I, our lives will return to a level of normal. I think that what probably the more lasting effect will be uh, in healthcare, not so much in daily life, but in healthcare. Um, we're going to have to have a much better global systems to respond to this. I think for me personally, one of the more disappointing things has been that essentially every country where COVID showed up, they had to figure it out from scratch. We didn't have any kind of global alert or networking around how to respond to this. I think that's that's a bigger concern. I, I you know at some point down the road, I can't share now, but I'm involved in conversations that are happening with global foundations and things to really make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. That's what we'll see probably more lasting impact in in terms of how it changes our lives, things like air travel and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I know we've talked that that Merck and Moderna have are close to, you know, they basically are have vaccines in trials right now. When there is officially a vaccine that could be distributed to the public, I mean, the one thing is that it's not going to be a magic cure, right? I mean, it, it's going to take a while for all of a sudden you, you, most people to develop a little bit of immunity, right? Yeah. And I think the big thing there, honestly, um, in Mike, is to keep people protected. I mean, that's the vaccine. Again, if the virus is going to be part of our daily lives in some way, it's going to be just like the flu. Now, a lot of people get the flu. Most people don't have to worry about dying from it. And that's where this will be. And so we'll probably use the vaccinations to, to really protect. I mean, if we had a vaccine up front, 
you know, we really wouldn't need to do the social isolation because in younger people, the risk of severe disease from COVID is not a lot different than the flu. It's really in the older and people with underlying conditions. And so it'll probably be more like that. Just like uh, people, if they've had their spleen out, you know, they have to take antibiotics. I mean, this happens to hockey players where they get traumatic, you know, they rupture their spleen playing is not an uncommon injury. And they have to take antibiotics before they have a dental procedure because that leaves them prone to getting infections. Um, it'll be something like that with vaccination where you'll say people probably need to get vaccinated some maybe you know yearly or every other year because uh, they're particularly high risk for getting you know seriously ill with covid uh, you're listening to straight from the source with michael russo uh, to subscribe to the athletic uh, please go to the athletic.com straight from the source that will get you in with a free trial then 40 percent off and uh and if you want to read this story with bill reese that i'm writing in the next couple of days that's a place and that we got a lot of wild stories coming up there's also podcasts throughout our network uh just a ton of them uh doc emmerich's on with pierre lebron and scott burnside this week and uh, a really emotional one that's going to come out on thursday that i highly recommend will be with chris no the assistant general manager of the calgary flames he joins craig custance on uh the full 60 Full 60. If you know about uh, Chris Snow, um, he has um, has Lou Gehrig's disease right now. And uh, right now, if you go to calgaryflames.com slash strong, you can uh, you can uh, donate to help find a cure to ALS. Um, and uh, those that are wild fans should know Chris Snow. He was actually my predecessor at the Star Tribune. Then he went on to the Boston Globe to cover the Red Sox. Then he became the Minnesota Wilds director of hockey operations. This is many years ago. Uh, and now he's with the Calgary Flames. So uh, please definitely listen to that podcast coming out on Thursday. Again, my my uh, guest is uh, Bill Maurice. And uh, I do have a lot of Twitter questions from you, uh, Bill, if you don't mind me uh, just throwing a couple at you. Um, you know, uh, here's a good one. I don't know if you want to uh, answer it. Uh, Jackson asked, um, as a doctor, how disheartening is it to see that this has become so politicized, which people choosing who do they believe based on their politics? Um. It's disheartening is is one way. I, I think that's one reason why I like I appreciate this opportunity. I think it makes it more incumbent on people like myself in the in the in the profession that have information just to share it. Um, it was you know, and, and it's interesting. I mentioned to you before. I have friends and uh, business associates in China, and I saw the virus caused caused social unrest there, uh, where obviously the the political and freedom of speech are not the same as they are here. So I, I kind of knew it was going to come. Uh, I just hope it doesn't become so polarizing like the rest of politics. I mean, one of the things that was really cool. Uh, the silver lining with, with COVID was the way it pulled together lots and lots of different uh, people across the country and across different industries to try and fight this. And hopefully we won't lose that spirit completely. Um, Aaron Heckman, uh, Dean, uh, Marty Cormack all asked very similar questions about getting fans back into the building. Um, you know, uh, one, do you, do you see sort of a phased, uh, you know, return of fans into arenas? And or do you th think that it can only happen after a vaccine is out? Uh, you know, what what do you see when it comes to getting fans back in eventually? And what do you see the timetable would be? Yeah, well, I have to say it's it's uh, I, I'm biased here. I'm a fan. <laughs> I'd love to get back. And I'm also someone that tends to be pretty. I, I think I have the, the I'm blessed with having enough 
uh, knowledge to have an understanding of my risk. And that's another reason why it's great to be on here. Uh, I would see a phased approach as something that might be rational um, where the, you know, they're going to have to have probably just like restaurants and other places where they have the seats distanced, um, where they make masks mandatory. Um, and it might even be that you have to sign some kind of waiver to say you're not going to hold the arena, you know, uh, liable if you're exposed, you know, inadvertently exposed. And it's going to be would be almost impossible to prove anyways. Again, I think there's ways to, to do things in a, that are that are thoughtful. Um and that, and that would really be okay. So I think because a, a vaccine realistically is probably going to be mid 2021. And I think there's going to be some way to bring fans back before then, depending on a lot of things and including, you know, how we progress with treatments and other ways to manage the disease. And also if the testing gets better, I mean, again, we're really working with a lot of companies now. The ideal would be if you had some kind of test that someone, you know, before they came to wild game, they got, you know, they either at the door, just like you get checked by security and have to now put your cell phone and everything in that in the, outside of the detector, which I always, no matter what, struggle to find my phone and get it out of my pocket when I'm going in the arena. I don't know what that's about, but um, you know, where they, if you had a test like that and those are being worked on um, that you might be able to say, you know, get a, basically a clearance to go into the arena because you, you don't, you know, have a, the test is negative and you then if you wear a mask and do other stuff your chances of spreading it are, are really low yeah you've said so i that, think a phased uh, approach is feasible you you said that that there are companies like apple maybe microsoft or or google i can't remember who you said that are actually working on apps that are it's going to be essentially like a health card right that show people yeah that yeah that you have the immunity <laughs> Yeah, one of my colleagues here at Mayo is a guy that just recently joined, Dr. John Halamka, who is uh, the president of Mayo Clinic Platform. So it's kind of our move into digital health. And uh, he's a, he, I'm a, I'm, I've been here for 30 years. Uh, Mayo is a pretty conservative place. I'm a little bit counterculture in that I, I like today I still ride my bike into work. And so even though I'm way too old to be wearing like it in public, I still traipse into work and bike shorts sometimes. So he was, a, he was a, one of his first speaking engagements for, on, when he joined Mayo. He was on stage in a pair of Doc Martens. And I thought, well, I'm going to like this guy. But, and I do. He's, he's great. He's awesome. And so he's been working a lot uh, nationally on the national kind of digital response to COVID. And talk about companies that don't usually work together that are, but Apple and Google together have been working on using the uh, low energy Bluetooth signal from our phones as a way to track exposure um, and, and then having that upload to the cloud and getting anonymous notification and also having sort of immunity wow. cards that are could be available in the cloud too. Like if you've been, you know, like if you test positive for the antibodies and, and they're neutralizing that you can have like a, like a QR code that would show on your phone that you wouldn't have to get tested when you showed up to like a wild game. That's stuff that's having happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's ask, Shoeless Cobbler asks if, if asymptomatic people aren't infectious and kids are mostly asymptomatic, um, shouldn't they be in school? First of all, is it true that asymptomatic people are not infectious? Not true. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the, that is not the case. Uh, you know, there's still a lot uh, that we don't know about the virus. One of the things that's out there is that maybe if you get exposed to someone that has a ton of the virus, you're at much greater risk of getting really sick. We don't really know that yet. Another was that, you know, asymptomatic people can't spread it. Or if you get it from an asymptomatic person, you won't get as sick. Though neither of those are true either. So how sick you get probably depends on how healthy you are when you get the virus. And so an asymptomatic can definitely, people can definitely spread it. That's why, um, that's why there's, it's so easy to spread. There are some, you know, some people that they've gone back and done surveys and said, well, did you remember being sick? 
you know, if you had mild, just had a runny nose and a little bit of a sore throat, which is quite possible, you wouldn't even recall that you had it. So by, I think we just have to say, if you have the virus on you and it's live virus that, though we don't think of viruses as live per se, but you have the chance to spread it. And why do you think, I mean, is, is there data yet to explain why some people are asymptomatic and some people get severely sick, even, even people that are, you know, that have shown to be healthy? Uh, healthy Americans, healthy around the world, uh, that they still get severely sick. There are some there. We know some, uh, there does appear to be, uh, some there's different parts of your immune system. One part's called the cellular immune system with, with cells called T cells. Uh, they don't make antibodies. Those are the B cells, but basically there are now studies to suggest that some people have cellular immunity like that's effective against SARS-CoV-2 probably because of cross reactivity with other more common coronaviruses. So there probably are some that have some, some level preexisting immunity and that might be why they don't get as sick. Conversely, we know that some people that get the virus, their body goes into actual hyperdrive uh, and have they have what's called a, a cytokine release storm. But basically, uh, they have a, a an immune response, which is so vigorous, it actually starts to hurt the individual. So that, those are things. And that's that's one thing we can actually identify that before someone gets really sick. And that's going back to, you know, how you would manage if an NHL player got, got exposed. There are now things that we can test for to say, oh boy, this person doesn't feel sick right now, but we better get them treated because they're going to feel sick and they're going to be dangerously sick really soon because we know the way their body's responding to it. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Bill Maurice. A couple more minutes with uh, Dr. Maurice. A uh, couple more questions for you on the virus, and then we can talk a little hockey, which will be fun. Um, Doug yeah. Munson, uh, you just brought this up. I mean, you know, he do, he does ask uh, how many players testing positive will it take to shut the whole thing down? I mean, that is the goal that if there is one or two players that test positive during the course of this, that you could essentially pull them and not uh, shut everything down, right? Otherwise, you yeah. know, what's the point of even trying to come back? I agree with that. I think they just have to have protocols. And that's why I think it's going to really between the players and the owners. What does that look like in terms of, again, the, the, the goal is to keep people safe. I mean, we thought there's Rudy Gobert, of course, was kind of the most high profile NBA player early on. I mean, he was OK. And then I'm blanking on the other, the really good guard on that on the Utah Jazz that uh, also tested positive after. So um, I can remember where the guy played college ball at Louisville, but I can't remember his name anyway. So um, but I mean, so it's really about keeping the players from getting really sick. Um, and I think, again, they're just going to have to have protocols in place that if someone does test positive, they can say, well, the chances that he spread it to a teammate are low because of the, the measures we put in place. And then we also have ways to help manage that person if they get sick. Right, right. Because um, there's no absolute guarantee that they, they can't say there's no 100 percent guarantee that they won't get someone with COVID. Right. Right. By the way, you know, we always you know, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you know, don't wear a mask. It means nothing. And then all of a sudden the general population wore a mask. I don't know if the real reason for that was so all of us didn't go on to Amazon and clear out the masks to the point that, that healthcare departments couldn't get it. But now all of a sudden wearing masks is something that can help inhibit the spread of this disease or getting the disease. Then you hear six feet away is, is perfect uh, distance to be away to social distance. Is there, you know, when it comes to these droplets, is there a magic number uh, to distance yourself away from other people? Yeah, probably five or six you know, feet is important. That's one of the things we looked at here uh, at Mayo is that could the virus spread 
in aerosolized form, meaning if it got into vents, it could get into another room. We actually studied that um, quite carefully. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Matt Kalstrom, was actually a radiologist, and they looked at all the rooms. It does not spread by aerosol. Um, it really is droplet, which means it, it's as it sounds. So it's probably mm-hmm. five or six feet is, is a safe distance, um, you know. <laughs> unless someone's intentionally spreading droplets in which case they become goobers i think but anyways right, right. <laughs> um you know uh yeah so that is that, that those things that's a real thing and and how about surfaces is there a real uh number that this virus could live on because you know i, I will say one thing i am very nervous about is because i promise you i will be extremely uh do my best to to make sure that i don't risk getting sick, but I am getting worried about getting on a plane again, living in hotel rooms again, walking around locker rooms, going to restaurants. I mean, I'm somebody that, you know, like clockwork during hockey season gets sick every two, two and a half months. And I haven't been sick since the pandemic started because I am social distancing. Well, at some point I'm going to have to get back to my job. So, um, you know, how, what about surfaces? Well, I think, first of all, surfaces are a concern, and it varies by the surface type. You know, uh, metallic polished surfaces, maybe it lives longer than some others, um, and it can live, you know, the early studies suggest it could live for up to days on certain surfaces. Again, hand washing is that's what's critically important. It's not just touching the surface. It's touching the surface and then touching your face mm-hmm. is what really does it. So hand washing becomes important, but also all of these areas uh, and businesses, I can tell you again from the airline industry, I mean, they're investing a lot. That's going to be a huge growth industry. If, if you have a kid in college, tell them to go into material sciences because these materials that are actually antimicrobial are going to become huge. And that's what's going to be more of an imposition is probably procedures like at gyms, like a my gym now they close for a half hour um you know every two hours to clean so you go in in shifts i mean those things really really help control the spread because if you go mm-hmm. but if you think about it we didn't we were basically going from not caring at all to now caring a lot so there's going to be a the risks are going to really drop with that and and the the one thing i know like delta has the anti-fog the foggers right now that they go in and and disinfect between flights and, and things like that i mean is that the type of stuff that could be used in a locker room all okay. that stuff, wiping down protective surfaces, you know, and then uh, just like the, 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 there was a lot of really sad stories with athletes getting actually the staphylococcal infection, you know, um, that causes uh, the ne- the cellulitis and the necrotizing cellulitis. And they, they had to look, it was actually, I went to college at Indiana University. Uh, there was a, an athlete there that I think ended up uh, losing, I don't know if she lost a limb, but she got, you know, she basically ended her career by getting staph from, from the gym. And that's when they went to copper surfaced weights, you know, dumbbells. So there's little things like that you can do um, that will help a lot. Right, right. Uh, how did you become a, a wild fan and a hockey fan? I mean, obviously, you said you were from Indiana. I don't think there's a ton of hockey there. <laughs> no, that, that's he that played in great... Indianapolis at one point. That's right. He was a racer, but I never yep. saw him when he was a racer. Um, I didn't really care. Actually, it's pretty funny because I'm a huge sports fan just in general. So, and my when I my I got married, my wife's from Mendota Heights up in the Twin Cities. Um, her dad is a guy named Eddie Murren, my father-in-law, a great guy, was a professional bowler 
bowled for Schmidt Brewing um, in the 60s. And so it was kind of a local uh, sports celeb up there and a St. Paul guy. So she was glad of the of the sports. The one that I didn't really care too much about when we got married was hockey. So she said, at least I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> and what happened was my father-in-law, when the Wild came and, and they decided to, to um, you know, take the St. Paul Civic Center and turn it into the Axe, he bought season tickets um, to support it because it was in St. Paul. And he had four seats and I have two, three kids. And they, they let us all go in because my youngest was, uh, was an infant. And so we started going to all these wild games and I, I became hooked like right away. And honestly too. And then I, there's something about the, the, the players themselves and the ethos of the sport that I really liked. And so I got really hooked. And the other thing that's great about hockey is that unlike the NHL, it's not so rule driven. And the mm-hmm. more you play and you re- and you watch these players and having a son that came up through it, you realize the skill layer, the skill level that these guys have. And as someone that's not very big, I'm only five, eight, you know, I got a chance to, to meet some of the players once a really cool story um, for me anyways, was uh, my youngest son, who's a, uh, that he's, I think that's why he started wanted to play hockey because he went to all those wild games. So he and I are huge wild fans. Our whole family is actually. Um, we were following you actually on Twitter way back when the Wild used to practice over at St. Thomas Academy, yep. uh, which of course is by Mendota Heights, so right by my in-laws. And so I saw you tweeted that they were having a practice there. Um, this is a while back. It was. Um, and so, uh, and so we went over and we managed to catch the, the players as they were leaving the locker room to get on the team bus and meet all of them. The two coolest things was I got to meet uh, Zach Freezy. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fanboy of Zach Freezy, and he was no <laughs> bigger than me. And he signed my jersey. Unfortunately, it was a green jersey with black ink, so I had to convince people that it's there. The other thing that's really <laughs> cool, so my son's favorite player it was Miko Koivu and still is. And we didn't have any pens or anything with us. And so uh, he asked me, said, what should I do? And I said, well, just ask Miko if you can shake his hand. Um, and he said, okay. And you could tell you would probably, you know him well. I don't know him at all. You could tell he thought that was pretty cool because then someone came up with a bunch of glossies for him to autograph, um, I think, to sell on eBay. And he took the pen and he came back over to my son, who at the time was like 13, uh, and put this huge signature all the way the, across the front of his white jersey. That's awesome. And patted him on the head, and that was like that was just it was just it was su- a super cool moment. And then the other part was Charlie Coyle, who was a rookie at the time, actually saw my son looking at him and came back down off the bus and talked to him for about three minutes about playing hockey and stuff like that. That and sounds so, like Charlie. Yeah. Yeah, it was so it was it was one of those mad at that and after that that's when I was really really hooked. The best part of that whole thing was we were leaving and my son looks at me, he's 13, he's like he's like dad, are we dreaming right now or is this really happening? <laughs> that's so awesome. Cool. I think that's the biggest um, you know, one of the things that Bill Guerin is also trying to change is, you know, with the new practice facility that the Wild have, they're just they're not, and it's going to be hard now with social distancing, but they're not as accessible as they used to be because they go on the ice, they take an elevator back down to the locker room, and then they leave through an underground tunnel, and they go to the arena in underground tunnels, and it's just they're not nearly as, as accessible as they used to be. And I've already seen that Bill Guerin has asked players that, hey, before you get on, uh, because especially now that practices are open to the public, hey, before you go back down to the locker room, go to the other side of the rink, sign some autographs, uh, and make some kids happy. Yeah, I have to tell you that, uh, you know, I've had a chance to meet some other professional athletes along the way, nothing like that. But the coolest thing about the the whole experience for me was that if you didn't know who they were, you would have thought it was just a bunch of guys just getting done playing hockey. I mean, they just didn't, the way they carried themselves, their their approachability, they were affable, they were, you know, spending time. It was, it was really cool. It made you really, and I remember 
there was a story also about uh, the captain of the Capitals after they got defeated in, in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, stopping and helping a team fix their flat tire, you yep. know, after they there. And I thought, well, that's just the, that's kind of the that's the culture of the players. And that's what makes it really easy to root for yep. them. As a fan. Matt Dumba did that last year, leaving the arena. There was a, a couple that I believe was oh, on the side right. of the road. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, yeah, that's right. These guys are uh, That's why I cover hockey for as long as I have. They are good guys. Um, so let me just ask you a couple more minutes with uh, Dr. Maurice. Uh, you're a big Miko Koiva fan. It's obviously going to be an end of an era if this is it for him, if he never gets to play another XL Energy Center game because he's in a bubble for the rest of his career and then goes back to Finland to, to bask in the sunset. Um, you know, who, how, how big of a era, uh, you know, how, how big of a loss is that going to be to your whole family, uh, knowing how much you respect him? And who do you think should be the next captain of the wild? Well, I would say, um, you know, it's going to be, it'll be different. I mean, having watched him, he's been a, a fixture of that team and it's been, you know, very interesting to, to watch. And, you know, now that I have to lead a, a you know, we have, I'm the president of a, of a, of a company as well as the chair of a big department with 4,000 employees. And it's become obvious to me during all this, how visible I am in terms of leadership. And I, I think that the way that Miko carried himself in leading the team and the, 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 uh, kind of the whole, uh, vibe that he gave to that team, I think was always underestimated. I know there's always a lot of fans saying he shouldn't have to, you know, he wasn't fiery enough for him, which if you were at a game and saw, yeah, I always loved it. Pissed off Miko was always quite the sight to see. Yep. You saw him like getting into it with the refs and stuff, um, which was difficult to see on TV sometimes. But I think we will miss him as a, as a, as sort of driving the culture of the team more than any of us realize. So it will be the end of an era. I think, you know, you've talked about Felino. Uh, you know, he's someone that I could see really wearing that seat, yeah. uh, the way he carries himself. Uh, he really seems to embody that. And, and it's shown a lot more skill here in the last, you know, year, year and a half than yeah. I think a lot of us realized. Yeah, I think uh, Felino or, or Spurgeon make the most sense. Yeah. Just, uh, Spurgeon, if you're going to go longevity, now has a seven-year deal kicking in. And, and man, as we've seen the last couple podcasts here on the uh, Straight from the Source, just a, a great, great human being and citizen and uh, and beloved in that locker room. But then Felino is kind of, you know, I think it said a lot when Bill Guerin called Felino to set up the uh, Born to be Wild video a couple uh, months ago. Uh, yeah. and not anybody else. I think it shows you what Bill Guerin thinks of him and, and how much the players on the team respect uh, Felino to kind of lead that charge. Um, so that makes yeah. sense. Um, I'm amazed that I've gotten through an entire podcast with a wild rube and you haven't asked me about Kaprasov. <laughs> well, those are the, I did, I did, uh, you know, I asked my son, the youngest son, which, what questions we should ask. I think the other thing with Miko, uh, is, you know, what are they going to do as the center? It's going to be interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, but the other big question for us is, would you see Kaprasov, you know, as a line mate of Fiala or that's would a, you see with those, you know, that's one thing he and I have been kind of going back. I haven't seen enough of his play yeah. to actually know if he would be complimentary to Fiala or if he would want to actually separate those guys. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting because there. because technically Fiala's a right wing and Kaprasov's a right wing. So do you, yep. one of them would have to play on the other side, uh, which is possible, um, absolutely, for that to happen. Um, it is interesting because I've asked Billy Guerin that same exact question as you. And what he says is that I could see them on the same power play together, but even strength potentially on different lines. And obviously, as we know in hockey, eventually they always play together eventually. So, I mean, there's a chance that I'm sure that we're going to see Kaprasov and Fiala on the same line eventually. But maybe to start off, you put them on separate lines. 
Um, that would be yeah. one thing. And in terms of centers, I mean, that's an interesting question that you just asked because uh, I do think that's the one area where the Wild have to get get much, much better and maybe use one of their defensemen to acquire a center. And, uh, you know, we a lot of Wild fans on my other podcast ask me every week about Jack Eichel, and I said on last week's podcast they will get rid of Botterill before they ever trade uh, Jack Eichel, and today they fired their general manager, the Buffalo Sabres. So I think that answers you right away that they don't care how unhappy – uh, Jack Eichel is the goal is he's going to win that battle and uh, Jack Eichel is I think going to stay a saber right now because I don't think uh, the new GM's first uh, order of business will be to trade a franchise player like him so they're gonna the, the one thing you say is the wild they're gonna they're gonna have to improve up the middle there's no doubt about it yeah to me that's the biggest that that's the that, as I think about the team and going forward that'll be the that's the you know, it's so important that that uh, having depth down the center of the ice, as they say, um, and how they're going to accomplish that. They do have a great they have a great number, you know, good players. And I think uh, Garen coming in, I, he's really inspiring a lot of confidence as a fan that he's going to do the right things. But uh, and I, the thing is, it's still a great team to root for. Every year is a little different. And also the other thing that's intriguing to me is how will they respond if they do indeed come back? I mean, it's a veteran team that you would think should be able to to take off without a lot of, of, uh, you know, of ice time, but then the beginning of last season, when we thought they'd get a, a hot yeah. start was exactly the opposite. So it just, yeah. it just shows that we don't really know. Well, they don't, you know, doubt. And they definitely rested up. Hey, last question for you that uh, just joined me. One player keeps on asking me all the time, the new tests that you're going to have to do for COVID will it be less invasive or it will be the type that every single time they're tested, it's going to have to go straight into the navel, navel cavity. Um, we are coming and we are developing a, a test, which is much less invasive because it goes back to, we, you know, there's other tests. People have heard about spit tests, but the problem is that they're less sensitive, you know, and then that mm-hmm. increases the likelihood that we talked at length about that someone could have it, but we didn't know it. But we are actually working. You can tell them here at Mayo, we are working on something uh, which is not as invasive, but it's still as sensitive. So they won't because those things are. I've had to see. I've actually had a friend send me uh, in healthcare, send me an X-ray of the back of those things and and stuck broken off in someone's nose. So it, oh. it's not. It is. It is not something you want to have to do every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Maybe I'm okay not covering anything. So <laughs> 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 I'll just uh, I'll just cover it from home. Hey, Doctor Maurice, <laughs> I really do appreciate it. And uh, again, if you want to uh, read more about this as well, I'm going to be doing a big story this week about these hub cities and what it's going to take to make this all work. And Doctor Big Doctor Bill Maurice is a huge uh, source in that type of story as well. So um, to to read that story, um, you know, definitely subscribe to the Athletic. And again, if you're listening to this uh, podcast on the athletic app check out our comments section for each podcast and don't forget to rate and subscribe to straight from the source on apple if you click on the show url which is the athletic.com slash straight from the source you'll get 40 percent off your subscription hey dr maurice i really appreciate your time it was very generous with you this uh this afternoon oh gosh it was it was a real honor to get to join you i i uh, i really i really appreciated the opportunity yeah. Well, it's not as cool as the fan, but uh, but your son, I think, will enjoy listening. <laughs> it's straight hockey, so it's all cool. Yeah. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. <laughs>